Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. The title for today's Sunday School lesson, which is a standalone lesson just this week, just today, is an antidote to worry, frustration, and jealousy. I want to start out with a question. And here's the question. What do you most want in this life and the next? If you could distill it, let's keep it to this life, in this body. If you could distill it to the simplest terms, just one, two, three words, what would it be? Don't answer out loud. Just think on that. I'm going to provide my thoughts on that. What do you most want? You might think of material wealth or comfort, but if you're thinking like that, think deeper. We know lots of miserable people who have lots of money, right? What do you most want? Now, the technically and beautifully correct answer is what I most want is to worship, right? I'm a worshiper. But you probably didn't think of that, so let's dismiss that for a minute. I've given it some thought, and here's what I think. I I came down with three. Here's what we most want as humans. We want to be loved. Would you agree? Is that high on the list? I'll make it personal. I want justice. That's another thing I want, that I crave, that I desire. In fact, I'm made to desire justice. And thirdly, I want peace. I want peace in my soul. I want peace with my God. I want peace with my neighbor. So love, I want to be loved. I want justice and I want peace. Those are three big ones, I think. You may think of maybe a couple others. Let that sit in your mind and your heart today as we consider worry, frustration, and jealousy, which is the topic for today. All right, who's the target audience? Have you ever thought, I hope my husband is listening to this sermon? (laughs) Or wife, I know you were out with the stroller, but uh, it was recorded. It was just a really good, I'm not going to give it away, but there was a really good lesson today. And uh, I listened to it. You might want to listen to it too. Well, if you feel like that today, when you hear the title, Worry, Frustration, and Jealousy, don't do that. This is for you because this applies to all of us. There is no one. I guarantee to whom this does not apply. So the target audience is me. The target audience is you. The target audience, excuse me, is not the person next to you. Except that they are also a me. All right, so worry, frustration, and jealousy. Please now, in your own mind, pick the one you struggle with the most. If you struggle with all three, pick one. And we do struggle with all three. If worry, think right now of the thing you worry about most or that you most often worry about, or have the deepest worries. Maybe you have a propensity in your family for heart disease, and you're wondering how long you're going to be here, able to provide for your family, or love your children, or do the things you're called to do. Maybe you worry about the faith of one of your children. Maybe you worry about something more trivial. If frustration, and think of that also as anger, 
I want you to think right now, if this is your, um, the top of the three for you, what is, who is the person who frustrates you the most or the thing that most often frustrates you that triggers you? Picture that in your mind. And if jealousy, then think right now of the person of whom you are the most jealous or the most frequently jealous. All right? We're going to make this personal. You got to picture this in your mind. You got it? Okay, given that, what's our outline today? Problem, part one, and solution, part two. Pretty simple. So for the problem, we're going to briefly examine worry, frustration, and jealousy. We'll look at common definitions, biblical perspective, and I'm going to try to capture the essence of those three in the simplest language I can. So we kind of distill them down to what they are, and then we're going to consider the antidote. And in the antidote, we're, that, that part, part two, has two parts itself. We're going to know some things, we're going to learn some things, and then we're going to do some things. I'm not going to actually do them today, but we're going to talk about what can be done. And uh, you may know these two concepts as orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Those are new to you. Ortho, right, doxy, belief, or belief, right, orthodoxy, right, belief, orthopraxy, right, practice. So we want to believe certain things, know certain things, and then we want to do some things. We want to act on what we believe. Because what we believe affects what we do. And what we do reveals what we believe, and it also shapes what we believe. So it's a circle, right? In fact, I think that's one of the topics in the other Sunday school class right now on liturgy. So today we're going to look at these three things, the problem or part of the problem in our lives, and then an antidote. Resources, I listed some resources on the back of the handout. If you got, came in late and uh, need a handout, they're right there on that round table out there. Um, so I borrowed from some of these sources. I wish I had more time to list more um, but I didn't. Uh, there was a sermon a few weeks ago by Matt Carpenter, Eden or Chaos, that I would commend to you. Uh, there's books on bitterness, anger by Jim Wilson and Douglas Wilson. Um, there's great audio from Grace Agenda 2020. There are lots of hymns and psalms set to music in our, in our church hymnal, which are wonderful. I listed a website there and another couple books. David Powlison is a good resource. Paul Tripp. I wanted to mention this ahead of time because I don't want to end with a list of resources. I want to end in another way. All right, well, let's uh, pray and we'll, and we'll get started. Lord, give us humility as we consider these matters today and then give us courage and discipline to act on what we learn with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, problem number one, worry. Synonyms for worry are anxiety, fretting, apprehension, panic, fear, Dread, restlessness. You may not have thought of some of those as being examples of worry. Common definition of worry is to give way to anxiety or unease, to allow one's mind to dwell on difficulty or troubles. A state of anxiety and uncertainty over actual or potential problems. And I think we can identify with that, right? A lot of worry is about things that haven't happened but might happen potential problems. As a brief aside here, I want to mention something about the word dwell, because it's a very powerful word in this dictionary definition. Worry is allowing one's mind to dwell on difficulty or troubles. The word dwell is in scripture, I don't know, probably a thousand times. And usually it's in the context of a dwelling or dwelling in the house of the Lord. But I want to read something from Acts 2.25, which is quoting David from the Old Testament times. And notice the word dwell here, which I'll emphasize, and what we're to dwell in, according to King David. 
Acts 2.25 and the following. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So an alternative thing to dwell in there. Dwell in hope in the Lord as opposed to dwelling in difficulty or troubles. All right, well, let's look at the biblical use of words that are translated. The the most common word that's translated to worry. Meremnao, to worry. And the interesting thing is that the Bible uses this word both positively and negatively. The same word is translated and used in English as worry or concern. So it can be unrighteous worry or it can be righteous worry, righteous concern for something. So I'll give you two examples of the positive use of that word, which is not the context of this lesson. And then we'll look at the unrighteous, unrighteous worry, fretting. So positive uses, Philippians 2, 19 and following. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, says Paul, that I also may be cheered when I receive the good news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, has a genuine concern for your welfare, a righteous worry for your welfare. Okay, so that's the same word that later will be used negatively as unrighteous worry. So this means to, to be righteously concerned with, to be careful for. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, this is a picking up on a sentence fragment here, but you'll get the point. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. That's that same word used positively. The parts of the body should be righteously concerned with or caring for each other. Now let's switch to the negative uses. Same word, meremnao, in Psalm 37. Here it is. This is the first word that I'm going to say here in this psalm. Uh, Verse 1. Fret or worry. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. We see here that envy is also mentioned in this. And worry and envy go together often. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Now a longer passage from Matthew 6 a very familiar one in the context of worry that I'll read very quickly. But notice that worry is mentioned in here four or five times. And it's the same um, original word in the original language. Matthew six twenty five and following. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life. There it is, worried. As to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body, as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. That they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Worried. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith, exclamation point. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat and what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So some examples from Scripture are positive and um, 
righteous concern and we'll call it sinful worry. What is the time horizon of worry as it plays out in our life? Unlike frustration, which can flare up very quickly, um, worry to me is typically longer. Could be hours, could be days, months, years. One of the things about these three things, worry, frustration, frustration slash anger and jealousy, is that they're like a headwind. It's just always there. And it's just fatiguing, right? Even the ones that are not, that don't flare up, right? Like worry doesn't necessarily flare up like anger, but it's always there. Have you ever lived in a windy place? You're just like, oh my goodness, it's so windy. It's, or you, maybe you live with chronic pain and you stop from time to time and you go, oh yeah, I have this pain. I have this worry and it's nagging. It's always there. And wouldn't you love to be rid of it? So worry can, can take place over a long time. About what do we worry? Finances, material security, that hits all of us, particularly, I think, women, right? Wives, is my, is my husband going to financially provide? Is my, are my children going to be provided for? How about we worry about what someone else thinks about us, my performance in other people's eyes, pleasing other people. That may be big for teens. Maybe there's a big decision at work, the spiritual state of a child. Now, that could be righteous concern, as we just saw in Scripture, depending on how it works out in our life and how we, how we act on it. How about aging parents? Again, worry about aging parents. That could be righteous or unrighteous worry. A medical diagnosis or disease, as I mentioned before, maybe you have a propensity in your family to some illness that has taken your father, your mother, your grandmother early in life. How about worry about an exam that I did not study for? Well, the issue there is now you have two things to confess, right? Your lack of discipline and procrastinating for the exam, and yet you still should confess the worry. Right now, you kind of created this situation, right? So there's a a double one. What is the essence of worry then? Problem number one here. In my words, here's what I think the essence of worry is. I see things happening or that might happen that are not the best for me. Because I know what's best for me. After all, who loves me more than I do? So I see, I know, I love, but I can't control the situation. I'm not powerful enough. So I worry, and I certainly don't have peace. So that's worry. Let's go to frustration. Synonyms for frustration, dissatisfaction, annoyance, might be on the low end of frustration, irritation, vexation, resentment. How about whining in a young child? That's a, that's a form of frustration, right? Here's the common definition today in the dictionary. The feeling, frustration is the feeling of being upset or annoyed, especially because of the inability to change or achieve something. So we call that futility, right? I'm acting, I care, I'm doing things, and my efforts are futile. I cannot change my circumstances, and I become frustrated. Now, there are two variants in, in my eyes of Frustration, and maybe this will help, help provide a more fully orbed idea here as we get into this. The one I would call anger. On the low end, maybe exasperation. You could think of frustration maybe as baby anger that might grow into fully orbed anger. Frustration that flares quickly is what we're thinking about here. I've heard it said, I remember who it was, 
Speaking of frustration giving way to anger, irritation is like a hand on a sword which gives way to a drawn sword. We all have swords on our hip, and I know we've all done this. I've done this, right? I'm irritated. My hand goes on the sword, and before you know it, out comes a sword, and I'm just slaying people in the house. So this gives rise to anger very quickly. So that's the one idea of frustration, anger, exasperation. There's another one that maybe is more subtle that I think you'll identify with that I would include in frustration, and that is disappointment. It's frustration over time. It's not the kind that flares up. Something happens and you're disappointed in it. You wish it would have happened different. You're typically not hot in the face. It's more down here. Have you ever heard a, a dog uh, kind of whimper? Like the dog's sad, they're hurt, you know, they're disappointed. Um, you have that kind of feeling, the lump in your throat. Um, it may be more deep-seated. Frustration over time instead of a hot flame. Instead of a flame, it's more like embers glowing, right, over a long time, this disappointment. Biblical references. Before, with, with uh, worry, we looked at kind of positive uses of worry, concern, righteous concern, and the negative. Here we're going to look at, I would call it a neutral use, just a grammatical use of the word frustration, and then, and then the unrighteous version. We'll call that unrighteous anger. So first, frustration in the sense of thwarting or neutralizing plans. Galatians 2.20 from the KJV. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So we're familiar with that, right? Frustrating the plans of, here frustrating the grace of God. I do not frustrate. I do not neutralize. I do not set aside the grace of God. I do not bring it to naught. That use of the word frustration in Scripture we are not considering today. Here's what we are considering. Proverbs 29, 8 to 11. And this, you may have heard others teach, is the context here with this word off is hot in the face, you know, blowing out your nose, um, uh, uh, an angry countenance. Here it is in the ESV. Scoffers, Proverbs 29, 8 to 11. Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. There's the word, anger, right? unrighteous anger. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Now I'm going to read key phrases of that verse in other versions. I just read, scoffers set a city aflame. Now listen to it in the King James and the New American Standard. It'll give you an idea of the sense here. Scoffers set a city aflame. King James, scornful men set a city aflame. New American Standard, arrogant people set a city aflame. So that adds Maybe some unrighteous pride and arrogance in this idea of anger. And then later in that verse, a fool gives full vent to his spirit. The New American Standard said, says a fool loses his temper. Earlier in Proverbs, Proverbs 22, the same word for anger. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So anger is contagious. How many fathers have seen this? 
I've done this. You come home, you're irritated, you start snapping at people, and before you know it, they're all snapping at each other, and it all just spread from me. So here we see in Proverbs 22 that anger is, is contagious. Frustration is contagious. Ephesians 4, switching the New Testament, 31. Here's the word orge, anger, indignation, vengeance, wrath. Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Let all bitterness and wrath, and there is a different word. That word wrath is not the one we're looking at. That has the connotation of boiling up. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, there's the word, and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. So clearly this too is a sin. What is the time horizon with frustration and anger? It's often very short, as we know. It arises very quickly in a flash. It's hard to say, well, I'm going to apply discipline in this situation. You can't apply discipline then. It's too late, right? The discipline comes in the preparation and in the habit building and in the cycles which we'll talk about in a little bit in the practical part here. Because it's too late when the trigger happens. If you're not already predisposed to certain ways of approaching your, your frustration or the things that frustrate you, then it's too late. But frustration or anger can also endure over the long run as an undercurrent of frustration. And maybe you are this kind of person or you know these kind of people who are frustrated often. There's always this undercurrent of frustration, of angst, but then it flashes, right, even higher to high amplitude when triggered by something. Some people are frequently frustrated. Often they can be perfectionistic personalities, competitive personalities, um, but it affects all of us. What are we frustrated about? It starts really young. A toddler has that little plastic ball that's hollow and has all the shape holes, and they pick up the circle and they try to put it in the square and then they bang it and then they get frustrated and then they throw it, right? Or more commonly, they don't want to lay still on the changing table. Your teen sister is taking too long in the bathroom. Man, how petty does that sound? How trivial when you, like in this room, how trivial does that sound? Very common, right? My children are whining. They're still whining. They're still whining. I remember, I don't know where it was, I saw a flash video once, a little uh, animation of a, a mother penguin standing on a chunk of ice in the ocean, and just this dead look at the camera. And there's these little penguins just yipping, whining at her feet. She has feet, or whatever they are, paddles. And she's just dead face. And you can, I mean, it's just a cartoon, right? And she's just had it. You can just, you imagine that she's just had it. And they're just yipping, 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 and whining. And all she does is go, poof, and kicks this little penguin in the water. And Killer whale goes, whoop, and the video ends. Brutal, right? But you can identify with it, right? Ah, oh, this whining, this, this, this frustration in the children. The dog chewed up another diaper, leaving it strewn about. Again, this happens in our house. Someone tracked mud across the carpet. My body doesn't look the way I want it to. Some of these are significant. Some are trivial and petty, as I said. What is the essence of frustration? I see things happening that I don't like. I don't like them because they are not the best for me. I know what's best for me because I love me a lot. But I can't control what's happening. My efforts at control, controlling these variables in my life are futile. 
I see, I know, I love, but I can't control. So I'm frustrated or even angry. And I certainly don't have peace. And I don't have justice. Remember, peace, I want to be loved. I want justice. I want peace. We started with that. Three things humans really want. Love, justice, and peace. So here we are. Frustration, anger, and we don't have we don't have what we want. So let's go to problem number three, jealousy. Jealousy is very old, right? It's as old as worry and frustration or anger. <clears throat> Lucifer was jealous of God's glory and power and was cast down. Cain was jealous of Abel and became angry and killed him. Now we see the fruit of that jealousy was anger, and he actually killed his brother. The Philistines envied Isaac's wealth, and they filled his wells with dirt. I remember a sermon preached not too long ago by Brother Jason Cherry on kingdom math, on the loaves and fishes. I think it was in Mark. And so here we have the Philistines making the zero-sum error, right? There can only be so much blessing, and he's got it, and I don't, so I'm going to destroy his blessing. Totally wrong view of kingdom math. Obviously, as Philistines, uh, they would have the wrong view. Rachel envied Leah and said, give me children or I will die. That envy is very, very strong. Give me children or I will die. Joseph's brothers were jealous of their father's love for Joseph and sold him into slavery. Saul was jealous of David and tried to kill him. The common definition of jealousy or envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or good fortune. We are most often, I think you would agree, jealous of a person or jealous of a family or, or a people. Here are the biblical uses of envy. There are many. And again, some are righteous. There is righteous envy. We know God is a jealous God, right? And he does not sin. So there is righteous jealousy. And then some are not. In all these examples here that I'm going to give you three of them, one positive and two negative, um, the word is kinah, jealousy or envy. Isaiah 42. In this In this passage, that word is translated or means intense zeal for. So this is righteous jealousy, righteous zeal. King James, the Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy. Or the ESV says he will stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemies. I think of that... um, there's famous scenes in movies where the king or the leader of the army will ride in front of the soldiers and clap their spears and with his sword and, and stir up their zeal, right? Um, stir up their jealousy for their cause. That's kind of the image here. But let's move to the negative since that's our, we're talking about these as a sin here. Proverbs 14.30 in the ESV, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. So tranquility, tranquil heart is life-giving. But envy makes the bones rot. Isn't that a great word? Rot. Who wants rot? Rot is never good. No one likes rot. Envy makes the bones rot. Same word, again, used negatively in Proverbs 27. Wrath is cruel. Now here we're going to see them tied together, right? We just talked about wrath. Wrath is cruel. Anger is overwhelming. But who can stand before jealousy? It's as if jealousy is the worst of them. Now, what is the time horizon for jealousy? Jealousy can be sudden, but in my experience, jealousy is really very cyclical, right? I have something I'm perennially jealous about, and I I go on with my life, and I'm not struggling with jealousy, and then I'm reminded of something, 
And all of a sudden, the jealousy kicks back in. And it'll last for a time, and then it'll subside. I'll be distracted, maybe by good things, work to do, responsibilities. And then I'll, I'll encounter that trigger again, or that reminder, and I'll be jealous again. So jealousy is very cyclical, as some, as some, are, uh, some of these other uh, sins. <clears throat> the older we are, the longer our memory And in my assessment, the longer the jealousy lasts of a person or thing. You know, a toddler can be jealous of a toy. Often it's something they weren't interested in, and then they see another kid interested in it, and they want it. But five minutes later, they've forgotten, and they moved on. But man, adults, we have long memories, and we can be jealous for a very long time. Jealousy, too, is like this headwind. It's there. I can't get rid of it, or can I? Should I fight it? Do I fight it? I'm not making any progress. It's just this constant headwind. Things of which we're jealous. Children, a toy, teens, many things. Maybe a wife is jealous of another woman for her husband's income or house or children. Husband may be jealous of another man's wife, another man's abilities or the respect he commands in the marketplace. We're even jealous of things other people don't like themselves. Like the example that comes up my mom all the time when I was a kid, you know, you go out to the dock to fish and everybody's like, don't fish off our dock on this side of the lake. There's no fish here. We've got to cross the lake. You've got to go somewhere in the boat. That's where the fish are over there. And then the, the guy who lives on that dock on the other side, he's getting his boat. He's coming to this side. I remember seeing being on a dock as a kid fishing and I'm like, everybody says there's no fish here, but that guy just drove 20 minutes in his boat to get to this bay to fish. We're jealous of things that we don't, that each other don't even value and Children, as I mentioned, do this a lot with toys. Luke 6.32 says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Love your enemies. It says after a little longer. So think about this. The hardest thing to love is your enemy. It's easy to love those who love you. Until jealousy sets in. Jealousy even thwarts the easy love. Imagine someone, a brother or sister, who truly loves you, is charitable toward you and gracious toward you, and you're jealous of them. It's hard to love them. And they're not your enemy. So not only do we have a hard time loving our enemies, we have a hard time loving people who love us, who are lovely, because we're jealous of them. The jealousy kills, kills that love. What is the essence of jealousy? In my view, I see something that I want, but I don't have it. I know, I know that I deserve it. In fact, I deserve it more than she deserves it for reasons that I'd be happy to enumerate, and I do so regularly to myself. Therefore, an injustice has occurred. Now I'm a righteous crusader, right? I demand justice. Justice is a good thing, There has been an injustice. I demand justice. Maybe even I'll become angry because the injustice is so deep. So I see an injustice. I demand justice. I am in the know. I am the judge. I am jealous because I can't have what it would be just for me to have. So I don't have peace and I don't have justice. And clearly I'm not loved or I would have those things. I have none of the things I really want in life. I don't have love. I'm not loved, clearly. I have no peace. And I don't, 
enjoy justice. I have not obtained justice. So, worry, frustration, briefly, and jealousy. What do these three have in common? Well, at first, they often travel together. Worry and jealousy can lead to depression and frustration, can give way to anger. And the scripture points this out. A couple examples in Proverbs 6. Notice multiple of these elements brought together. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Like, it'll go all the way to murder if necessary. Jealousy makes a man furious. Or in 1 Peter 2, notice these are used uh, in the same sentence. So put away all malice, frustration, anger, and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So they go together. That's the first thing they have in common. The second, all three are based in my desire to control my circumstances, my life. Notice I've been emphasizing me, 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 I, 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 right? I want to control my life. All three of them have that strong element. All three, worry, frustration, and jealousy, are counterproductive. In our grasping for love, for justice, and peace, we are instruments of destruction. We destroy them, or we're at least blind to them. Because we know justice will occur, right? Because they're a king in the heavens. Number four thing they have in common, they all preach a false sermon about me and about God. The first thing in the sermon is, I have perfect vision. I see the situation for what it really is, both in the near term and the long term, and for all the people involved. I can even see motives. That's how good my vision is. The second part of our sermon I know what's best for me because I love me more than anyone does. Even more than God does. Third part of our false sermon. I am the best one to know about and arrange the things around me for my good. Maybe you're good too, but mostly for my good. Fourth thing we preach in worry, frustration, and jealousy. The things that humans want most, love, justice, and peace, I know how to obtain them. And then finally, and this is the essence of what we're preaching, I am God. A pitiful one of that, since I can't obtain love, justice, and peace. But I am God. What else do these three have in common? They reveal a couple of things. Worry, frustration, and jealousy reveal what I really love, what I am truly worshiping, Someone put it this way, our fears and delights, so two sides of the coin there, negative and positive, our fears and delights reveal who we are worshiping. And here's the proof that whatever it is, the trigger, whatever it is you're jealous of is so precious to you that it's an idol. Here's the proof. You're about to lose it. It's threatened. In a fallen world, the things we love are vulnerable. Think about that. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will only love things worth loving And they won't be threatened. Can you imagine that life? In this world, the things we love are threatened. The things we love but shouldn't love are threatened. The things we should love righteously are threatened. Everything's threatened. So here I am in this fallen world, and there's something that is threatened, something I value, because someone else has it, jealousy, or someone else broke it, frustration, anger, or it might happen, worry. And that thing is so important to me 
that when it's threatened, I will forsake joy in order to obtain it. I'll tear my house, house apart, my relationships. I'll tear it all down to have it. It's my precious. I am Gollum. Gollum is so ugly. We are Gollum, chasing after our precious, justifying destruction to have what we want. Finally, before we look at the antidote, let's consider whether we let these things become seated sin, settled sin, I love those adjectives here, or battled sin. This is the choice before us when we walk out of this room. I can treat worry, frustration, and jealousy like the everyday common cold. It's just always around. We'll never lick it. There's nothing I can do about it. The best you can do is just cope. It's everywhere. Or it's like a bad man who moves into your house. And there he is. He sits down on your sofa, kicks up his feet, puts his hand behind his head. He's there for a long stay, and I leave him there, accepting him as part of the furniture in the house of my life. It's just, it is what it is. Worry, frustration, jealousy. I mean, you know, it's everywhere. Let me concentrate on the big sins. Right? Not committing adultery, at least not physically. Um, I'm not murdering. I'm not stealing, mostly, right? At least not outrightly. But these, ah, they're just part of life. So that's one option. Let them become seeded or settled sins. Or we can do battle with these sins and not give in to them as settled sins. Don't let them be habitual, ingrained, enduring, deepening sins. Now, the stakes in this choice are high. The stakes are really high. If I don't battle these sins and the ones like them, worry, frustration, jealousy, here's what happens. If you don't do battle with them, you will be miserable. And so will the people around you. And worse, you'll be disobedient. You will be in rebellion against the God of the universe. And you will grieve your heavenly father. I will grieve my heavenly father. And then thirdly, if I don't do battle with these sins, I won't be effective in his kingdom. I will thwart the creation mandate and the Great Commission. So the stakes are very high, very, very high indeed. All right, let's look at the antidote. So part two, the antidote. We're going to know some things, believe some things, right? Orthodoxy, and then we're going to put some things into practice, orthopraxy. Why do I worry? Why am I frustrated? Why am I jealous? Well, it's because I cannot see well. I don't know most of what's actually going on. I don't have power or control over my life in spite of loving myself. I really don't know what's best for me. So that's why I have those things. I need someone who sees perfectly is supremely powerful and who loves me perfectly. If only such a being existed, who knew everything, could see everything, understand everything that's going on, and had the power to arrange all those variables and loved me, that's it. That's what I need. Right? Based on what we described, those problems were. I'm seeing, I'm arranging, I'm thwarted, I'm frustrated. Man, I just need somebody who can see perfectly, who is powerful and loves me perfectly. I need someone who is omniscient, all seeing, knowing. I need someone who is omnipotent, all powerful, and someone who loves me, loves me dearly. 
I need a God who makes good promises and can keep them and does keep them. So let's consider then these three attributes of God as the things we need to know and let and rest in in our hearts um, as the antidote. And then we'll act on them. So omniscience. You all are familiar with this. God is all knowing. He can see me and every detail of my circumstances. Luke 12, 27, continuing what I read earlier. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. He sees. He doesn't miss anything. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. So in contrast to God's perfect knowledge, we humans have poor vision and knowledge. We justify our anger as necessary for correcting the injustice. The problem is our vision is blinded. Anger blinds. We know that, right? There are times where I've been angry and if someone, my wife comes up to me and says, you know, you're really angry. I'm like, no, I'm not. I was really controlling it well. I had a neutral face. I had a calm voice. And everybody around me knows I'm angry. We're pretty blind to our own anger. You can even be almost to the point of throwing things and then later be like, I really wasn't that angry. And everybody in the family is like, are you kidding me? So we're blind. Anger blinds us. We do not see well in contrast to God. He is omniscient. He sees and knows. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He is weaving this together based on his perfect knowledge. Corey ten Boom in the hiding place. This is what the past is for. Every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives is the perfect preparation for the future that only he can see. Amen. God knows everything. Omnipotence, omnipotence. God is all powerful. Listen to this passage. Think of the outstretched arm of God, the right arm of God, his power. Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You have shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and to this day in Israel and among all mankind and have made a name for yourself as at this day. You brought your people, Israel, out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, with great terror. This is a powerful God. We say it every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father, almighty. James 4.12. Remember earlier I said, I'm the judge, right? I get to decide who gets what around me. In contrast, in James 4.12, it says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. That'll give you shivers. That's a powerful person. He has power in creation, in providence, in salvation for his people, in judgment, in creating the new heavens, the new earth, and much more. By contrast, what is man's power? Listen to our power in Luke 12. And he said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Who can do that? He's saying this is a puny thing. Just add an hour to your life. 
Verse 26, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? You know, God's saying, you're so puny. You can't even do this. Well, here's a little test. Just add one hour to your life. You can't. Why are you anxious about all this other stuff? You have, you're so, you're so powerless in many ways. So thus far, we've considered that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. We won't cover this attribute, but it is, it is important and necessary, and that is that God is good. It's very scary to have a being that's all-knowing and all-powerful and is not good, but God is good. But we're going to move on to the final attribute that I think is relevant here. They're all relevant, obviously, but that is the love of God. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us one, love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. And the reverse is not true. Love is God. It's, it's not always true in the reverse. God is love. And this is the love of, uh, this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, satisfying God's anger. Paul Tripp makes the point that the story of the Bible is the story of two angers. Our anger, and then God's righteous anger. Fascinating, huh? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God's love is transcendent. It is set apart and different from everything we experience, all other loves we experience here um, in our lives. God's love is flawless. It's perfect. It's pure. It's beautiful. There is no selfishness or sin anywhere in the love of God. And here's a big one. God's love is not mutually exclusive with his sovereignty, his holiness, and his justice. God's love for his people cannot be frustrated, cannot be thwarted. Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what does this have to do with worry, frustration, and jealousy? God loves me, God loves you more perfectly than you do, than I do. How can I choose a better arrangement of the details of my life than he can? This requires humility. 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself under the omnipotent God that he may exalt you at the proper time. He knows the right timing. You don't even know the right timing. Even if you could arrange everything right except the timing, all the variables you had control over and perfect authority and vision and love and everything, but you got the timing wrong, it'd be a mess. That he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He loves you. See how that ties it all together? God is omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He loves you. He cares for you. So cast your anxieties on him. So why these three attributes? Why pick these, these, these three? He knows everything I'm facing. My circumstances, my temptations, my weaknesses, my needs. Nothing can stop him from completing the good work he began in me. He's motivated by his perfect love for me. Now I want to read a verse from St. Patrick's Breastplate, the Lorica, which we sing, right? I'll put up my right arm when I see a reference to God's omnipotence. And I'll put up my left arm when I see a reference to his omniscience and then his love. Listen to this. I bind unto myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need. 
the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard. Beautiful, huh? So the promises of God, what does the God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and perfectly loving, what does he do? What does this God do, this amazing being? I mean, if I could contrive the perfect being to solve my problem, that would be it, right? The powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing, loving God. What he does is he promises a future for you and me with him, a glorious future with no tears and no suffering. And he also promises you the new heavens and the new earth. We will inherit the earth. And then he says, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. And he will provide a way out among many other promises. So how do we claim these promises? That's what we need to know. We need to dwell on those three attributes of God. And then what do we do? The most important thing is we need to live the gospel. So I'm going to talk about that and then give about 10 or 12 kind of practical things that you may want to list down. And I can provide this later um, if it's a help to you. We need to live the gospel in simple form. This is very important, right? Name and confess my sin to God. I am worried unrighteously about this and I confess it to you. Then you need to confess it to those who witnessed it. A classic example is anger. If I'm angry at my wife, I need to confess it to the Lord. I need to confess it to her. And if I was angry in front of the children, I need to confess it to them. Confess it to those who witnessed it. And then bask in God's forgiveness. And then go back into fellowship with joy. That's what we do all day, every day in our families, right? And around you better be people ready to forgive 70 times 7 which is its own struggle, right? All right, so how do I ready myself for the next temptation? Here are, I think, 11 or 12 kind of practical things to do. First, practice noticing that I've sinned. Remember, we're blind. So I have to have have self-awareness. Sometimes I don't even see my sin. Ask others to be censors. This can be hard to do when they're broken people that I'm mad at, right? Ask them to be censors. Hey, when I am angry, because I understand I have a problem with this, please take me aside gently and say, hey, you seem really angry. And then, and then start noticing what's going on in you based on their feedback loop to you so that you can be self-aware. You've got to see your sin, right, if you're going to do anything about it. You've got to see that it's happening. And it's often oblivious to me or I'm blind to it. Obvious to them, but not so obvious to me. So practice that self-awareness. Practice noticing that I've sinned. Then pause, and Dave Pallison um, has some helpful teaching on this. This doesn't work real well with frustration. You know, you don't really feel like pausing, but for worry or jealousy, you can pause. And list, literally write down what you're worried about or jealous of or frustrated about. Write down why you're worried about it. Normally, I'm worried about this, and I can't control it. And this is important later because when you look at the attributes of God, you're like, wait, if my fundamental worry is that I can't control these things, he can control them. And that's very comforting. All right, so pause and write this stuff down. And that can enable your prayer of confession, right? Pray. Pray after an episode of worry, frustration, jealousy, and pray daily in your own words, not in fancy, stuffy language. Name and confess your sin, telling God what you're worried about or angry about or jealous of. And then present your supplications, right? Ask God to increase your faith, to help you see your sin. All right, next, serve. After you've prayed, go on with the business of the day. Nothing will, you know, righteously distract you from your petty 
concerns, then serving. Have eyes to see the needs of others. And then as we read, let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Just get on with your responsibilities today. Fulfill your obligations. Another thing you can do, obviously, is sing. Sing and listen to music that reminds you of the God that we just described, the attributes of that God and of his promises. Importantly, another one, worship on Sunday with the congregation. What do we do? We profess our faith. We become convicted of sin. We confess our sins. We're reminded of gospel forgiveness in Christ. We're instructed. We partake in the table. That's vital in this fight against the, these sins. Read the scripture, especially the Psalms, Psalm 13, 73, 88, among others. Give thanks. One of the most important things to do if you're frustrated, angry, depressed, is to give thanks. And you've got to write things down. So you're going to replace these cycles of court that you hold about all the injustices in your life. Instead, you're going to replace it with cycles of thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Doug Wilson teaches on this beautifully. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what will happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, that's one of the things we want, peace, will guard us, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving thwarts jealousy, selfishness, pride, bitterness, fear, self-pity, and resentment. Giving thanks recognizes the reign of Christ. Another thing we can do is be generous. When you give to others, it gives you eyes to see their needs, right? And it reminds you that you have plenty. You can share your burdens with another, have them pray with you. Particularly for anger and frustration, make sure you get enough sleep. Exercise. If you're angry, go run around the house 10 times. We tell a little boy, right? Go run around the house. Hey, man, go run around down the block and back. Like, you need to cool off. And it really does help. If you eat a meal, get exercise, eat a meal and sleep the next day, who's had this? I'm like, why was I so mad yesterday? Right? They're very practical things we can do and they take discipline. Read biographies of Christians who suffered. Watchman Nee, Corey Ten Boom, and her sister Betsy, who didn't write the book, but was influential, obviously. Gladys Aylward, Johnny Erickson, Tata, Brother Andrew, Amy Carmichael. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And this is very important. Be rid of things that cause you to stumble. I believe Facebook and Instagram are primary tools of the devil to trigger jealousy. If it masters you, turn it off. If you master it, then use that tool to the glory of God. And here's the test. When you see someone that you know on Facebook or Instagram enjoying something that you supremely desire, here's the test. Do you praise God for blessing that person? Or do you become jealous and start rehearsing all the reasons why you deserve it and they do not? That man bought a beautiful big piece of land. I saw it on Facebook. He split it up. He gave a lot to each of his sons who were each married to beautiful women and are now raising gorgeous children who frolic in the green pastures with carefree abandon. And I'm stuck in this dumpy apartment with no storage, colds and earaches every other month, and a washing machine given as a hand-me-down. Don't tell me to praise Jesus. Have you seen the life they have? I deserve that, not them. They don't even have their kids in Christian schools. So if it's robbing you of your joy then it's making you impotent in God's kingdom. Turn it off. All right. Fight bad habits with good habits. And we'll close. If you are in a repeating pattern of worry or frustration or jealousy, there is not going to be one aha moment at all as well. One book, one sermon, one Sunday school lesson. Right? You walk slowly down into the valley, you're going to walk incrementally back out. We need to develop habits of responding to the feelings that are triggered in a way 
um, that's, that makes it, that solves it, right? Not continue the, the feelings that continue the cycle. We create this liturgy of jealousy, right? Rolling the unfairness, as Doug Wilson says, over in our minds, this idea of like a candy, right? We're kind of rolling it, flavoring it, except it's not a candy. And then returning to it again. We give into frustration once and then again, and it's easier and easier to sin. So break the bad cycles with good cycles. Have a plan of what you're going to do when you have those feelings. The first part of your plan should be the gospel steps, right? Name it, confess it, be forgiven, and get back to serving. Here's an example. You're on Facebook. You see some family that you're jealous of, and they had a great ski trip. We haven't been on a vacation in 10 years, and they go to Vail every year. Here's a practical plan for that. Name your sin, jealousy. Confess it to the Lord immediately. And then pray for that family. Lord, thank you for giving them that trip. May they be so united in fellowship as a family that they are more potent in your kingdom because of that ski trip. Pray for them. If you're mad at your wife, pray for her. Pray for her good. Pray that the Lord would raise her up and use her in his kingdom. Pray for their good. In the ski example, do you realize that in 10,000 years, you who have never been to Vail will very likely have been downhill skiing as many times as that family? Think about that. We have a whole life of beautiful downhill skiing on the most incredible mountains imaginable ahead of us. In 10,000 years, you may be skiing with them, with that family, enjoying the best hot chocolate in all of creation at the top of the mountain. So what's the result of this? We can have peace, John 16, 33. We will be made whole. Some of the Bible's use of the word peace is really the idea of being made whole, being made one. We will be able to rejoice in our sufferings We will experience joy and affliction, and we will be potent in God's kingdom. I'll close with the two verses from this beautiful hymn, Be Still My Soul, which has relevance here. Be still my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, though through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he lived below. Well, my prayer is that I will um, step out in courage and with discipline and uh, tackle these sins. To God's glory, may you also. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit, who is our helper. We need, uh, we need strength to do these things. And uh, give us joy, Lord, for the joy of the Lord is our strength, as it says in Nehemiah. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.